there are people in the world who don't like leftovers. They don't like leftovers because leftovers are not as good, they're not as tasty, they're perhaps not as fresh, they're not as unique as the first time that you cooked the food. There are others who are happy to have leftovers, who, who look at leftovers and say, these are not only delicious, but if there are enough of the leftovers, then the reality will be that perhaps I won't have to figure out how to prepare the next meal, the next lunch, the next dinner, depending on how many leftovers there are. Regardless of your personal preference regarding leftovers, we can all, I think, agree that the presence of leftovers, whether the leftovers come from uh, a restaurant you went out to eat in and you just couldn't eat all that was there, or whether they come from your own table, the presence of leftovers is a sign of abundance. We ate, we were satisfied, and there was more that was left over even after we were satisfied, our bellies were full, we had more than enough, and there is still some left over. When Naomi and Ruth made their way back into Bethlehem, they returned, as they say specifically and clearly, particularly Naomi, they returned empty-handed. They didn't have anything. Naomi's cupboards were bare. There was no freezer. There was no pantry. There was no fridge to go in and raid. There was nothing. But Ruth 2, Ruth chapter 2, is going to take us from emptiness to leftovers. Verse 14, come here and dip your morsel in some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers and she ate. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. And not only is it going to take us from emptiness to leftovers, but as she then finishes her day and the reaping that she had done throughout the day, she is going to return to Naomi's household with her arms full. She has an ephah of barley. And apparently an ephah is uh, some fairly large measure, three quarters of a bushel or so, four gallons of barley that she has with her. And she's got the, the, the ephah of barley and the leftovers from lunch when she comes home. They have nothing when she goes out. And she comes home looking like this. The trajectory of the story has flipped. Naomi had said, when we left Bethlehem, we went out full. Now that may have been something of an overstatement that she made there. But she said, we went out full and when we returned, we came back empty. And now, Ruth leaves in the morning empty and she returns home with an arm full of food. And Naomi looks at her, and Naomi's question that she has here is going to be our question of the day as well. Naomi looks at her, and 
and I don't even know if we can enter into the scene. I don't even know if we can imagine the kind of poverty in a world without stores, in a world where a foreign woman is going out into the world to try and see, is there any just thing I can pick up off the ground? But she comes home with all of this stuff, and Naomi goes, what in the world? What, what happened between this morning and this evening? Where have you been? Who, who have you been with? Did you steal this? <laughs> did, where did you get? Oh, there we go. That'll do it. Where did you get all of this food, this surplus? What's going on? That's the question that Naomi has, and that is our question today, and here's the answer. Where did you get it all? Where'd the leftovers come from? The answer is the law and the leading of the Lord, the labor and the loyalty of the lady, and the laudable life and lavishness of the Lord. Lord with a lowercase l in the last one. So where'd you get all this stuff? Start with this, the law and the leading of the Lord. The events that take place in the passage and in the book that is set before us here rest on the character of God, the acts of God, and on the law and fatherhood of God. God loves the sojourner. He loves the one who is traveling. The Lord executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow, for the sojourner. In particular, he does it because it flows out of who he is and because Israel themselves, they were sojourners. They were people who had been driven out of the land because of a famine and had ended up in Egypt. Israel were sojourners, and therefore it is commanded of the people of God in light of the character of God, in light of the acts of God in redeeming them. Love the sojourner. Love the person who is in your land who is not from your land. Hear it clearly. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. That's an introduction for you. Who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Specifically, Israel was to provide for sojourners by allowing them, and this is what we then read earlier in the service that John read for us from Deuteronomy chapter 24, allow them to be provided for by working in the fields to glean, to come after your workers and to pick up what remains. And therefore, instruct your workers, don't strip the fields bare, don't strip the vines bare, don't strip the olive trees bare. Go through and take the produce and leave some remaining. Leave some in the back. And in that way, you will provide for the poor, for the sojourning, for the refugees. 
you will take care of the people who have, for whatever reason, been driven out of their homeland and have found themselves in your land. You take care of them by this means that I have provided. Let them glean what remains behind. Ruth is a refugee. And more than that, Ruth is a refugee from enemy territory. She's, she's not just a, a refugee from an ally somewhere that you know well. She is a refugee from a land that has historically and even presently, according to the book of jo Judges, been your enemy. We keep being reminded in this book that, and in this chapter, she is Ruth the Moabite, the Moabite woman who came in. And Ruth, when she experiences the kindness that she experiences from Boaz, remarks, how can I have found favor in your sight since I am, in fact, a foreigner? She is a refugee who has found refuge in the Lord, in the Lord who cares for widows, for orphans, for sojourners. That's the idea of this. Verse 12, Boaz speaking to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You left your home looking for refuge from the Lord and behold, you have found it through me. It is he God who has established laws according to his love that manifest not only justice, but also mercy. Now, that sounds a lot like it might apply directly to this week and the events of the week. I have sought to instruct us well over the years, and one of the ways that that one of the things that that means is that laws that applied to the nation state of Israel do not go one for one into how we should write U.S. laws. They don't. However, what we're instructed to do is to apply the general equity thereof. There are principles to be found in this that a modern state ought to take into account. Principles are God loves the refugee and the sojourner. And as much as we can take that account into account with justice and mercy, then we should do so. But not only has the Lord has established laws of love, he is also leading in love. And verse 2 and 3 make it clear that he is leading in love. Verse 1, by the way, is just kind of a, kind of, kind of a heads up to the chapter. You're about to meet someone new named Boaz. But when Ruth goes out in the morning and when Naomi says, go out, my daughter, and glean in the fields, what our writer is trying to make clear to us is that the, the field of Boaz was not the target. That was not the place that she was looking for in particular, that she was not purposeful in finding this guy who everybody knew about, Mr. Generosity, named Boaz. Instead, we read in verse 3, and it's, it sounds in English exactly the way it was intended to sound, which is to say she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And when you read that, you just kind of smile, 
and you say, let the reader understand. Ruth didn't plan it. Someone else did. So God leads her in love as well. So foundationally, what we're going to say about this passage, how did you end up with your arms full who went out empty, is that the Lord has given the abundance. In the second place, though, is that the abundance that is in Ruth's arms is directly attributable to the labor and the loyalty of the lady. Ruth and Naomi arrived in Bethlehem empty-handed, but Ruth is not looking for a handout. They have arrived at the harvest time, and when it's harvest time, there is an opportunity to work with your hands. In fact, at harvest time, it is all hands on deck. You make hay when the sun shines, you harvest barley when the barley harvest is ready. And she sees the opportunity. Ruth embodies initiative and industry. She embodies principles that we see throughout Scripture. She, the foreigner, she, the Moabite woman, embodies them. Proverbs 31, she works with willing hands. Ruth doesn't sit there and go, woe is me, woe are we. Woe is us. We've got to find something. We've got to do something. Someone has to provide for her. She says, I, I need to go out, Naomi. I need to go out in the field and work. She works with willing hands. 1 Thessalonians 4, we are instructed to work with our hands. 2 Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Ruth rolls up her sleeves to work. Here we are in this empty house with nothing to eat, what are you going to do? And the answer that Ruth provides is, I'm going to work. But it's not only the labor that yields the leftovers, because we are carefully shown by our author through the dialogue of Boaz that at the base of her visible labor, which you could see what she was doing with her hands, is a rich, vibrant, sustained, fruit-bearing loyalty and faithfulness by which or through which she has come to be known, even in the short time that she has been there. In other words, her reward is not based merely on the work of her hands. She is doing the hand and she's getting the reward, the fruit of her hands, but it flows from the character behind it. It flows from the faith that is moving and putting those hands in action. She, as she says, she's going to seek favor, she's going to seek grace in somebody's eyes, and she finds it, she finds the grace and the favor, she finds the blessing and the reward and the repayment, as Boaz calls it, because she is in covenant with Israel's God. That's at the foundation of what she's doing with her hands. She believes God, and she went out into the field. According then to the law of God, perhaps the custom of the land, and went out to glean in the fields, and in humility, she will serve and work 
wherever God has placed her. She will do what job she can do within this place. She's not a woman of means. She's not a woman of substance, a woman who can call the servants to go out and do this or can do, tell them to do that. She's a poor woman with nothing, and what she has is her hands. She's got her hands and her body, and with her hands and her body, she will go out to serve and to work. And that is an incredible example to all of us in our age. What do our hands do? So many times the answer for us in our culture, and I'm now reflecting on a sermon from last summer, the answer is we consume with our hands. We consume product with our hands. We consume all sorts of things with our hands. But what God would have the hands to do in addition to feeding us, which is a good thing, is produce, do something with the hands. Make something with the hands. And so Ruth is a producer. But it is not only the Lord and the loyalty of the lady that are the source of the leftovers and the abundance. In the third place, we consider the laudable life and lavishness of the Lord. And in this case, I'm using Lord in the way that the scriptures, in the way that Ruth used it in verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor, that word favor is grace also, I have found grace, favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. We are introduced to Boaz, as I said, in verse 1. And the descriptor that we are given about him is that he is a worthy man. And that is no small word to be called a worthy man. It can describe a man of valor, a man of courage, a man who is a mighty warrior, a man who has some particular position, some particular standing. And it is a word that is carefully and clearly attached to character. He is a worthy man of character. And just so we're very clear, and this is going to become very important in uh, Ruth chapter 3, it is a descriptor that can be applied not only to a man, it can be applied to a woman as well. Everything that we see of this man in this book confirms the fact that he is worthy. He is laudable as a man. The first words that we hear out of his mouth are, the Lord be with you, to his servants who are out working in the field. Now, if we step back for just a moment, we can perhaps understand a little bit better how exceptional this simple statement is. Remember that we're not talking here about the life of an Israelite family in one of the golden times of Israel's history. So we're not talking about a time underneath one of the good kings when everything was going well in Israel. This is the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We just studied it for four dreadful months. We know how bad the time was, how dangerous the time was. 
how many enemies were from without or from within, how you couldn't even find safety in one of the Israelite cities. We know what this time was like, but now we're introduced to a man named Boaz, and what we realize is that the, the word everyone, in everyone did what was right in their own eyes, the word everyone needs some qualification to it. It needs to be understood a little bit. Because here is a man who is seeking in this awful context of now a Canaanized Israel in addition to the enemies that were there. Here is a man who is seeking to uphold the law of God. Here is a man who is seeking to obey what we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm afraid that sometimes when we hear this shouldn't be the case, but I'm afraid that sometimes when we hear the phrase a man seeking to uphold the law of God or a man seeking to obey a particular portion of scripture, we might hear that and go, man, that's quaint, but he should just love. You know, we, we've superseded the law. He should, he should just love. We know that Pharisees did a lot with the law, but they were hypocrites. That's unfortunate. Because as this man seeks to obey the law of God, he is anything but curmudgeonly. He's a man who is apparently, by everything that we see here, full of justice and mercy and kindness and lavish generosity. And it overwhelms us and it overwhelmed Ruth in every scene, every time he talks, the bar is upped. He gives more to the point where she's not just gleaning, he has instructed his workers, listen, when you're harvesting, I want you to take some out of your bundles and throw it on the ground and let her come and pick that up. That's kind of beyond what 24, with Deuteronomy 24 says. Take it out of your bundle, throw it on the ground, let her pick it up when she comes by. This is way beyond that. This is deliberate generosity, hilarious generosity, lavish in all of its ways. He outdoes himself in providing, in protecting her in a very dangerous world, and in blessing. He is a man who is attentive to people to see what their needs are, how can he bless them? How can he consider the people who work for him well? He is attentive to people. He is attentive to the land that God has entrusted to him. He is looking for opportunities to bless in the midst of what we know are colossally evil days. And I think, frankly, this example is absolutely critical for us. We live in a world where we oftentimes ask ourselves, what can I do? What can we do as a church in the midst of this culture? How can we do anything to combat evil that we see around us? We seem to lose influence. We seem to see decay at every turn. Many Christians have responded to that in the last, I will say, 10 years by working on macro issues, issues of justice, racism, human trafficking, 
abortion, refugees, relief, helping the impoverished. May the Lord bless those efforts. Okay, just to, to give my word of testimony here, I have a son who works for one of the largest evangelical relief and refugee resettlement agencies. May the Lord bless those efforts. And sometimes when we think about, well, what do we do in a world like this? The examples that are held up to us, as happened in Sunday school and is appropriate, the example held up to us is Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon. I like them. I like going to those as examples. But guess what? Most of us are not going to be Joseph or Daniel, I suspect. Most of us are not going to be in the second position to the Pharaoh or to the king of Babylon, have his ear and say, hey, this is what you should do. Maybe this is the way we should treat people. But here, Boaz offers us an alternative or at least an additional model for us to consider. Boaz has established what I want to call, and I think I used this phrase 20 years ago in preaching through Ruth, and I can't remember any more of the source. I can't remember if it's, a, it's an inspirational moment of brilliance of my own or if I just borrowed it from somebody. So I'll just take no credit for it. I'll just tell you. Boaz has established in this world an outpost of shalom. It's an evil world. It's a wicked world. It's a cruel world in which he lives, and it's Israel. And in the midst of it, he is formed, guarded, created, fought for, an outpost of shalom. He doesn't apparently see his job to be change the world, transform it. He sees his responsibility to be obeying God, loving him within the lot that is entrusted to him, within the space that is entrusted to him, with the people that are entrusted to him, with the land that is entrusted to him, with the laws that are given to him by the Lord. And that means caring for the people, for the land, were the possessions that God has given to him as a steward. He's the owner of these places, but he's not the ultimate owner of these places. And he recognizes that in his stewardship, it is his responsibility to treat people, the law, the place, the land, the possession with appropriate dignity. How many landowners in Israel walked up to the people in the fields and said, the Lord be with you, and immediately got the reply from them and also with you. The Lord bless you. Something is radically different about working for Boaz than anybody else in Israel, at least anybody else that we've read of. I'm sure there were other outposts in the midst of it. This is the one that we know about. He will give account Boaz, to his Lord. He is a Lord, but he's not the Lord. He's a Lord, and as a Lord, he establishes an outpost of shalom, of wholeness, in a fractured world. The Lord is providing for Ruth and Naomi. Ruth is indeed working for that provision, but it's within that which Boaz has established. The Lord does it. Ruth works within the context of what this man has fought to establish over many years that we don't read a thing about. 
because this doesn't happen overnight. He reminds me of Philemon in the New Testament. Here's what Paul wrote about to his friend Philemon. Don't turn there. I thank my God. He's writing to, Paul's writing to Philemon. This could be written to Boaz. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Get a room ready for me because I want to be refreshed by you. I want to be bathed in a little bit of that Philemon hospitality and love. I want to be cared for by you. Philemon's house, Boaz, land, house, property. They are places of shalom in this world. Could it be said of you? Could it be said of us? Could it be said of your family? Could it be said of your home? Could it be said of our church? Could it be said of your desk or of the workspace that God has given to you? Would people come up to you and to your place and find refuge in that space, rest in that space? And that is a holistic question. It includes, is it a place where words of grace are spoken? The Lord be with you and also with you. Boaz speaks. It includes attentiveness to people and the land. It includes productivity. It includes giving the cup of water. Is this not what Jesus said? Give the cup of water in my name? Foreign woman, come, dip your morsel. And when the young men draw out the water, go drink that water. This is giving the cup of water in the name of the Lord. Who knows? Maybe Jesus had Boaz in mind when he gave that instruction to the church. It's a holistic question. Are our lives, our homes, our families, our workspaces, the places where we have stewardship, over which we have stewardship, are they outposts of shalom? And let me remind you of something here. If you're here and you're single, I'm talking about two single people. These aren't married people yet. This is Ruth, the widow, and Boaz who, as far as we know, has no family to speak of. And God is using him to create this space. It's a space that is characterized by lavish and abundant provision for the Lord that yields not only enough for the moment, but leftovers. Quick story. Sorry, it's going to be too personal. Uh, if you were at Temple University and it was lunchtime and you ate around Nate Hubert, or if you worked other jobs and you ate around Nate Hubert, you wanted to eat your lunch around Nate Hubert. You know why? Because Nate had extra cookies. Extra cookies were put in his lunch bag. 
for the people who were around. And in a small, a ridiculously small way, it becomes a little outpost of shalom. Have extra cookies. Leftovers for the people who are around you. Jesus said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. There is one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who embodies and is full of shalom in the midst of an evil world. And he says, I'm not churlish. I'm not stingy with this. What I have, shalom, I give to you. Here it is. It is my gift given to you. A harvest has been given to us. Our arms, our hands, which have been empty, have been filled with the goodness and grace of God. Bread has been provided for us from Bethlehem. Bread has been provided. And in case you don't know, you have more than enough. You have leftovers of this grace. And they are supposed to be for other people. They are supposed to be that which you provide for the widow, for the orphan, for the sojourner, for the refugee, for the one who is downtrodden. In his name, may we labor like loyal Ruth. May we create, protect, bless, and share abundantly like laudable Boaz. Being fully convinced that our God will provide for every need of ours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There are leftovers of that kind of grace. Lord, help us to be generous. Help us to give you first fruits and last fruits. And help us to love and bless the people whom you have put around us. We probably will not change the world. We probably will not be able to influence local, state, federal policies. But where we have opportunity to give the cup of water in your name, to steward well the people, the land, the possessions, the talents that you've given to us in a way that they are productive and bless others. Great God in heaven, help us to do so. Forgive us for not doing that at times and grant us strength to bless others with your peace. Jesus, we ask this because you're a great savior and have given to us. In your name, amen.